Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Hi, listeners. This is Jason. I am delighted to have you all listening today on the Fundraising Podcast. I've got a lineup here today that I'm very excited uh, to introduce you to. Uh, We have had a heck of a time trying to get the three of us on here to have this conversation. Um, I think this is maybe try number three. I think the last two attempts were my fault. Uh, So I'm very gracious, uh, grateful to David and Rebecca for both being patient with me. But um, uh, David, you spurred some curiosity on my part uh, with a recent article, so we're going to talk about that. I think that's what we're going to talk about. And Rebecca, I knew that you could uh, uh, play counterpoint on uh, some of the ideas that uh, David's going to uh, share with us, and um, and I'm just going to sort of sit back and enjoy the conversation. I might hop on my pedestal. Uh, at about 30 minutes in. But uh, as all of you know, all my listeners know, we like to uh, have a meaningful conversation without prepping a whole lot. But before we do that, how about we just let our guests introduce themselves? Rebecca, we'll start with you. Well, thank you, Jason. It's great great to be here today. Um, I have been working in the field of fundraising uh, for a very long time, as you can tell by my gray hair. And I have... Um, a background in higher education. Um, So a lot of my work has been with colleges. I was the vice president for advancement at at a college. Um, And then I was also the head of the Foundation for Independent Colleges of Pennsylvania for a short time when I learned that I don't like corporate fundraising. But that's another whole podcast and story. (laughs) So I have been consulting on my own for about 25 years. But one of my major clients during that whole time is an organization called Entrust, or the Entrust Center for Theological Schools, which gives you a sense of that clientele. So um, my, uh, that combines my interest in faith-based fundraising. So almost all of the organizations that I work with are faith-based. I also do a lot of work with boards because 
over the years, I've learned that you can't talk about fundraising in a nonprofit sector without talking about the board, and you can't talk with boards without talking about fundraising. So I thought, might as well put those two together and do it all under one title. So that's me. I've been doing this work for about 30 years. Rebecca, it is very difficult, and I don't say this just to... uh... I say this with all sincerity and honesty. It is very difficult for me to be working with a client where I do not reference Growing Givers Hearts uh, and recommend that they, uh, because it was probably one of the first books that I read, one of the first thick books that I read, um, uh, subtitled uh, Fundraising as a Ministry, seeing, you know, discovering fundraising as a ministry is something that I think so many of us both in the uh, faith-based space, but also in the secular sense. I think there's a lot of applicability to what you wrote um, and what I've continued. And I've recommended that book, bought that book for my clients, that sort of stuff. So I'm delighted to have you on here. David, you have been a guest on the podcast. I think I think you get the reward of having uh, been invited back in the shortest <laughs> time period between your previous episodes. I, I, I don't even think it's been 50 episodes. So that's kudos Happy to, to be you. Happy Yes, yes, I'm delighted. I think it was just back in the in the in the spring that we had you, and that was a really robust, meaningful conversation. So I'm glad to have you back. Tell us, tell us who you are. Well, so like Rebecca, I've got about 30 years in higher education, and a lot of it was spent in uh, fundraising. I was a college vice president for advancement. I've been in church related higher education most of my career. And I've also served as a college president. Uh, most recently, I had the privilege of working with Rebecca. She was my trustee at uh, Lancaster Theological Seminary while I was uh, serving there as interim president. And uh, through that connection, I've started working with uh, InTrust uh, with Rebecca as my uh, director uh, through the Why the Stewards Initiative uh, with, with uh, the theological schools working on governance issues as a governance coach. And then uh, I also work as the practice lead for private higher education and foundations for the Association of Governing Boards uh, consulting arm. And uh, where we, as Rebecca said, I, th- I think the, the transformational impact of uh, higher education or the institutions that we serve through this ministry of fundraising uh, really is at, at its heart a governance question as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. So, David, we like to come with a big idea, bold opinion. You wrote an article a couple of weeks ago. So you're, you're both very invested in higher education. And um, I posted on so my classes over at the uh, at your college started last night. And um, and I posted after, on my way back to the house after <laughs> before I left the school. Um, I have now spent six semesters teaching. I teach their social entrepreneurship class, their nonprofit management course, and now their small business. It's the most meaningful work I've ever done. I've got to tell, I mean, I love fundraising, but teaching is just remarkable work. And, and being in a classroom with 20 students, I was delighted to be back in the classroom. Um, it's just very meaningful work. So I was very eager to have this conversation because I'm invested both professionally and somewhat quasi personally. I've got my kids in college right now. Um, so, David, you had some big ideas to say about where education was going in sort of this post-pandemic sort of world, what the financial outlook was going to be. So why don't you tee up our conversations there? And then I'm just going to let you guys pass the ball back and forth. Yeah, I know you have a lot of uh, listeners, Jason, who aren't necessarily on the rhythm of higher education. So let me just uh, set the, the frame here that uh, most 
um, colleges and universities have a July 1 to June 30 fiscal year. That might vary by a yes. month or, or two either way. And so when we talk about the new year, we're talking about this time of year for colleges and universities as we begin the fall semester. And um, most colleges and universities have come off one of the most unusual years, just as the world has come off of an unusual year. And and one of the places that that's really impacted was fundraising. A lot of the things that you talk about, Jason and Rebecca talk, talks about, both in terms of being responsive and relational, uh, have been impeded by the the restrictions that we've observed during the pandemic for public health reasons. And so a lot of our the tools in our toolkit that we've used in the past to develop strong relationships with donors have have really uh, caused us to have to innovate and improvise over the course of the last year. And so I think a lot of schools saw mixed fundraising results. I think some schools had surprisingly uh, large fundraising uh, success last year, and other schools really saw some diminishment in their um, charitable giving over the course of the last year. I think the same is true on the budgetary um, front that a lot of schools did better than they thought they were going to do last year with revenues and expenses, and some some did worse. Those who did better often will credit the federal grants that they received and maybe controlling costs uh, below what the federal uh, grants were. But that's put colleges and universities in an odd situation as we go into the, the new year, um, because to gain students last year, a lot of schools uh, discounted more heavily and also uh, might have uh, reduced occupancy on campus. And so regaining the revenue streams that colleges and universities um, need for the new year is, is really strained. And now Delta is throwing a new curveball at colleges and universities too. And so both Rebecca and I've been at that cabinet table uh, when the traditional revenues uh, are added up and the traditional expenses are added up and the room gets kind of quiet. And then all of a sudden everybody kind of turns to the advancement VP <laughs> and the advancement VP <laughs> has this, you know, it has sweated over this goal for the year that they felt like they could actually bring in. And, but the only thing, the only lever that, an institution has to pull pretty much is the, is the development lever. And, you know, so is there anything more that we can do to raise more money in the new year? And so the, uh, the article that I, that I wrote that you were referencing was um, really talking to boards and presidents about what you could realistically expect from development um, this year. And the, the three things that I, I suggested were, um, you know, renewal, Reengagement and raising the bar, and the the main topics were you know with renewal. I think we really need to focus on stewardship and connecting those donors who did hang with us during the pandemic, and make sure that they uh, understand how appreciative we are, and make sure that we don't lose them. Reengagement is to find those donors that were with us right up until the pandemic. We lost them last year, perhaps for understandable reasons, but if we lose them again this year. Pretty much, we're going to have to start all over uh, with year three, and and the third uh, area was raising the bar, and that is don't don't be unduly pessimistic based on whatever um, you had happened last year, and don't be unduly optimistic if you had a, a really surprisingly good year. St- you know, stick to your guns in terms of projecting what the fundraising results should be for this next year, um, and I I would maybe err on the side of optimism if you had to had to pick between the two um, just because of where 
a lot of our asset donors uh, are right now. But Rebecca, I'm curious, uh, you know, what you think about those three things, how you would modify them or, or uh, add to them. Well, when I read the article, it was, it really resonated with me. And I mean, one of the things that I was worried about was that this, that um, organizations, particularly in higher education, could become complacent because of the government money and, you know, step back and go, oh, you know, we're, we're doing just fine, rather than looking at it as a blessing that can be used to give time to step back a little bit, or not step back, but take the time to really get see what's going on with donors, listen to their stories, hear how they came through the pandemic, where are they at in their own um, businesses, their own jobs, their you know their own investments, and and all of that, rather than you know having to hit really hard right away at the beginning of the new year, and. So I like that idea of, you know, renewing, renewing relationships and letting people know, we know it's been tough for everyone, so we're not going to talk just about ourselves right now or use really touching stories. And there's a lot of them of, of what families are saying as they bring their students or in theological education or and really in any of the nonprofits to hear what are the stories that donors are are telling about their own experience during this time and then to connect in that way so i i really like that i think it it also gives us a little bit of a breather to maybe plan a bit more for this year cuz i don't know about you but what i saw um late in the last fiscal year were a lot of um, just weariness yes. uh, on the part of, and and I know development staff are, are <laughs> always kind of weary at the end of the, of the fiscal year and that hard push. But this was a different kind of weariness because we all had to learn new technologies. We all had to try um, to, you know, do our work in different ways, and which was good because I think it disrupted some of our not so functional ways of doing things that probably needed to be thrown on the scrappy, but we just kind of kept doing them. But it also, it, it was, it was an added layer Mm. to the work. So I saw a lot of just really tired people. So maybe if we can start the new year, focusing more on relationships and at least in my experience with fundraisers, what feeds our souls are and feeds our enthusiasm and gives us energy and life is talking with generous people about, and that's at any level, um, anyone who's generous to hear what kept you going during this time. What, what gifts gave you the most joy over the last year? And did we contribute to that? Did our way of saying thank you contribute to that? And if not, I apologize, mm. and we promise to do better this year. And thank you for telling us. So, just having um, a little, maybe a little flex in this first half. And here again, I'm kind of thinking more higher education. A little more flex in this first half of the year, 
not backing off. There's an intention in these conversations. But so well, I really like that's interesting. You know, I pick up on your your point of um you know, mutual renewal that those, yeah. those who are working in the profession as well as the, the donors themselves are in need of renewal. And I think, you know, even though this is the beginning of the year for higher education, I think it's, we're all in the same season relative to the pandemic and, and that yeah. weariness that you spoke of, I think is affecting all of us. I wonder, you know, so I've, I've heard you talk before, uh, Rebecca, about approaching fundraising and giving from a perspective of abundance rather than a perspective of scarcity. And I wonder how much um, that weariness is related to us uh, feeling and maybe getting absorbed by a sense of scarcity in the last year when our tools were taken away from us, we're limited to two-dimensional screens and and how we how do we add that third dimension, that um, sense of abundance back in maybe as we go into this new year? Well, yeah, that's a great one because I have been again fascinated, um, and I think the fun thing about being a consultant is we're not really the ones doing the asking um, in most cases, and so we can just observe. And I have seen some fundraisers. And some organizations that just embraced the technology, you know, even and I'll I'll give a shout out for Lancaster Theological Seminary, which we both have been involved with, you know, discovering how events that were campus based. Right. Basically meant a little tiny segment of the constituency could actually participate when we took the alumni day right. online, all of a sudden, people were checking in from all around the world. Mm. Well, there we went from scarcity that we can't even do this to, oh, my gosh, <laughs> look, look at all these people and look how excited they were. Now, I would love to know, I would love to track the alumni giving to that, you know, and see, did that did that have an impact on alumni giving? Maybe one year wasn't enough. But I think we learn some things through that, which is another form of abundance. Every time you learn something new, that's abundance. When I say, oh, I've come to the end of my learning. I have nothing more to learn. <laughs> well, you know, then I'm starting to die. And so, you know, that was just one example. And I looked around and I began to see people who were being really creative and joyful in the use of technology and in new ways. Others were sitting there pouting because they couldn't do their golf tournament, you know, <laughs> or because it's really hard to do a golf tournament on Zoom. Um, and although I suppose there's somebody out there who found a way to do it. Um, but if you're sitting there pouting and saying, oh man, you know, now I can't, and using every the pandemic as an excuse or not being able to either pick up the phone or schedule a Zoom call with someone or think more creatively about an event, you know. So, yeah, I mean, abundance isn't just about what we have in our hands. It's about, I think, our whole way of looking at the world and at life and at possibilities and it, it just has made a, a world of difference. I'll tell one more and then I'll go back. No, that's great. There's this 
there's this wonderful ministry that was started here in my little town of Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, called New Hope Ministries. It was started by a group of six congregations. My my home congregation is one of those. Well, New Hope is just blossoming. And I mean, they're starting, I think now it's up to 11 or 12 sites around the area. They added two during the pandemic. And and people were just giving and but I'll tell you one thing, New Hope says thank you like nobody I've ever seen. Mm. They are, well, and, and some would say, well, sure, it's easy for them to say thank you because their work is a very visual kind of work. A lot of what they do isn't all that visual, and it's very private, but they use the, the visual parts to tell their stories really well. It's still a lot of work, you know, and... So that's my shout out to New Hope today too. But anybody can do what they're doing. It's it's realizing that I have an abundance of stories. I have an abundance of generous people. We have an abundance of opportunities. Let's bring all those together. So I think that's a great yeah. perspective for fundraisers to be thinking about this year. Even if you just think about your donor pool, as you know, look at it from a perspective of abundance as opposed to. If you lost some yeah. over the last year, yeah. a perspective of, of scarcity. And I wonder how that might influence the way that we think about reengaging those that we lost. What I'm taking from your vignettes and your advice, Rebecca, is that uh, maybe we should think about reengaging donors with story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, with the, with the renew, you know, the renewal piece where we're doing stewardship. I think it's, it's easier to figure out how to get into storytelling about what difference they made during the pandemic. But yeah. it sounds to me like we might need to listen a little bit more this year than normal uh, to yeah. those that we've lost. And instead of uh, coaxing or cajoling, we might just want to sit back and, and try to understand and comprehend uh, what they've been through and, and where they are, because they might, they might need to make that journey from, scarcity to abundance or remake that journey again in their lives. What do you, th- is, yeah. what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think if we, we really do need to listen very carefully to what people are saying, because there are, there are a lot of people who have been terribly hurt by the mm-hmm. pandemic. A lot of people who are grieving, um, real loss of family members, friends, but also grieving losses of high school graduations and, uh, you know, all, yes. all of that. Right. You know, so there's, there's plenty of grief. And, and so also to, to recognize the, that we, that we weep with those who weep and we celebrate with those who celebrate. So, I think I think that weeping part or the grieving or the lamenting, um, which lamenting is a, a big word right now. Everybody's sure. running around lamenting. Um, but I don't think lamenting is a word of scarcity. I think lamenting is a word that recognizes that there will be, there will be abundance. There still is abundance, even if I don't particularly feel it right at this moment. I can have that hope. But as we listen to personal stories, I think for fundraisers to have the room 
and the permission mm. to take time to grieve with someone and not to push them at a particular moment. And that's the art of fundraising. And, you know, some people would say, well, it's reading the room, you know, it's, it's, it's emotional intelligence. It's, it's, yeah, it's those things. But I think, I think when faith is in the mix, when God is in the mix, and that's, Jason, when you talk about the pastoral, it's knowing this is somebody who just needs somebody to sit here, cry with them maybe, and I'm really good at that. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> it doesn't take much for me to start crying. Um, but also to pray with them and then say, I'll be back. Mm. I'll be back. But here, and I'll, but in the meantime, would you mind if I tell you some stories along the way that I think will maybe help even heal the pain that you're feeling right now? Um, and just woo them back in with the right stories. But then when they come back, they're a story. Because they can tell their own story about how maybe giving again helped them move beyond what they were lamenting. They're giving from a different place. Yeah, yeah. And those are the stories that I'm going to be listening for, I think, in this new year. Um, and try, and so for fundraisers, and I, I, I hope we hear from some other people about, help us know how do we listen for those stories and what is sort of the appropriate venue or way to tell those stories without embarrassing someone or, you know. But I think... I think all of us will be deeply encouraged in our own lives as we hear how God can heal through generosity and God can return joy into our lives through generosity. I love I love what you said about giving the fundraisers permission to and the room to grieve with the donors. And as you talk, Rebecca, you know, I'm reminded that, that both you and Jason, I think for a long time have been calling for a paradigm shift in, in fundraising and in philanthropy in general. And, uh, you know, I, so maybe my biggest fear is that we'll, we'll revert back to our old yeah. tactics this year and not use this disruption that we've experienced as an opportunity to reform uh, fundraising in in the way that uh, I, th- I think most fundraisers know at their heart is you know what it's really going to take. You know you need you need that time, you need that space, you need that room to deepen those relationships and where you engage the donor in a mutually transformational or transformative experience. And uh, as you said, the donor can be changed uh, and and give from a different place if we engage them. Properly, but you know, if our if our tools come rushing back to us and we get back into the same annual fund cycle, the same event cycle, uh, the same uh, portfolio metrics, <laughs> then then we might feel different types of feel the old pressures coming back in, and it might feel old, familiar and comfortable again. And what it, what it requires us to to do is to stay in that in that space of discomfort and newness for a while as we try 
these new techniques that the pandemic in some strange way is giving us permission to fully engage and, yeah. and to really get in there and, and be relational in our connections with our, our donors and, and our other constituents. Uh, and, and so I think this is an opportunity like few others I've seen in my, my career to uh, change not just the tactics, but make a strategic and paradigm shifting uh, change in the way that we approach uh, philanthropy altogether. Yeah. So if you guys, so if I think back on the last hundred conversations that we've had here on the podcast, all right in the midst of this pandemic, yeah. I'm talking to fundraising professionals and I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about a lot of what you have just said, Rebecca, as it relates to abundance. But I'm also thinking about the last point, David, in your, um, in your article about higher expectations. And when we think about one of, one of the things that I recognize, so the first two fundraising, the first two fundraising roles I had in my career were rooted in, were at faith-based organizations. And there was, there was an underlying assumption of abundance and availability, I guess you could say. There was just sort of this underlying assumption that there was more to be had. Opportunities were always there. But then as I transitioned into working for more secular, what we would call secular institutions, organizations that were not raised in uh, sort of oriented in more of a faith-based tradition, I did notice some of that tired weariness and that lack of patience. One of you just used the word patience. Mm -hmm. And so getting back to the conversations that I've had with my, my guest in the last episode, my la for the last hundred episodes, I wonder if the two of you could talk to me about Talk to us about how raising that expectation I, – I, I'm thinking about even the organization that uh, – because it's an organization you and I um, – New Hope Ministries is very familiar to me too uh, as well because you and I both live in the same area, Rebecca. But how does higher expectations and some of these higher aspirations that the fundraising community seems to want to have – like we have these higher aspirations that I'm basically thinking, okay, I've been listening to you all, but your aspirations are completely incompatible with the way in which you engage with your donors, Right. Do you follow right. what I'm saying? I think that's kind of like the last conversation, Rebecca, you and I had at the breakfast table. It's like, I understand you want these donors to really step up to the plate. And I understand you don't want it to be all about them. But you're going to therefore have to have higher expectations of yourselves. And you're actually going to have to have higher expectations of your donors. You can't treat them like consumers. You can't just sort of sell them chotskis. You're going to actually have to lean into these relationships. You're going to have to you're going to have to be patient. Um, you're going to have to unplug a couple galas and golf tournaments. Um, higher expectations and higher aspirations sort of don't they don't they essentially work together? Yeah, yeah. Well, those that's a conversation I almost always have with boards. Yeah. Because, and here you know I I'm speaking as a board member in in a number of organizations, but. Um, you, you know, boards need to believe that there's a better way and that patience will pay off. And in fact, it will reap tremendous rewards. And that's, we don't do it for the rewards, although we, I mean, it's, my my theological base is Anabaptism, and, and we're we're sort of a two kingdom people. But it, it always drives me crazy when we 
flip between the you know the two and all of a sudden we're talking about you know sort of over here but anyway i won't get into that either but um yeah and and i think board members and others can get real uncomfortable with the way i'm talking because they see it as giving fundraisers permission to not really ask for money to just kind of run around making people feel good and right. um, and you go, no, you, you have a job. But what we do is we we think carefully through everything we do with the eye to am I moving that donor toward a different um, stage in their own life mm-hmm. and, and not for my organization. That's another, that's, it's sort of parallel track. I want mm-hmm. them to fall deeper and deeper in love with whatever organization I'm representing. But if that's all that happens, I've failed. I also want them to be able to tell me, what is this giving doing in your own heart? And, and particularly because I always work in faith-based settings, what is God doing in your life or what is, how is your relationship with God deepening? How are you becoming a more faithful follower of Jesus? Whatever the language is. And over the years, I've had to learn to be very multilingual in, in faith language. But it, however they're comfortable in talking about what is happening in their life of faith through their giving, um, if I don't hear that, then I've, I've missed the mark. So it it is, it can be kind of confusing until you really spend the time talking, but it's a hard one for boards to to grasp because boards just, I've had board members say to me, I don't want that mushy stuff or I don't want fundraising with a halo. I want somebody who can get out there, twist some arms, kick some butts. Um, You know, and I go, well, um, if we have a bunch of broken armed um, <laughs> donors who can't sit down, <laughs> it hurts too bad. You know, we've, it, they're they're going to go find someplace else to give, um, and that's you know that's not going to hold them. So, but it, it it is it's a it's a bigger upfront investment in the donors and in our own. Um, strategies mm-hmm. but once it takes hold and I would say New Hope is an example of what happens when it takes hold mm. you know they're not an overnight wonder they've been working at this for a long time and you can point to you know, lots of other organizations um, it, but when it takes hold you can't stop it. You know, the word that comes to mind as you're talking, Rebecca, is dwell in the, in the most positive sense of the term. You know, it's how, do you, how do you dwell with a, a donor and, and with a, a board mm-hmm. and deepen that relationship? And I have the same experience, um, you know, you do as a, you know, president or, or VP for advancement with boards actually, uh, 
you know, when it comes time for the campaign or to bring in more money, there is always, isn't there somebody out there? And yeah. well, yeah, the answer is always yes, maybe, probably, right? But we're not going to reach our goal unless we first take a hard look at the people who are in here. And, and we have to start with those folks who are closest to the institution already and aren't being introduced to the institution. And, and so it, there, is, there is merit to broadening the donor base. I don't ever want to take that away. But you have to remember that the breadth comes with some uh, shallowness. And, and you know if you're investing resources in broadening, you're probably spreading resources thin. If you're investing resources in deepening, you really are setting the institution or the organization up for longer-term success. Which, you know, Jason, this reminds me of another point that you've addressed in your podcast before with, uh, with you know, fundraising professionals in general, kind of moving up the ladder by moving across institutions and that uh, or from organization to organization. And, and that's a great way to increase your salary and get a better business card. But it sure makes it tough to have those longer term relationships where you can actually uh, deepen, deepen them. And, and so I think that puts the, the onus back on the institutions to find ways to have uh, professional development for fundraisers that allows them professional growth over time. And it also, I think, you know, going back to the, the broken arms and the, the sore backsides, I think we need to think about what metrics it is that we're putting before our fundraisers and whether or not we're requiring them to, to go out and get more quickly as opposed to get um, a, a higher quality of, of gift and giving attitude over time. Yeah, yeah. Because if we, if we don't understand that, one, our organization is seldom the only thing the people who we call our donors care about. They're also several other organizations. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a competitive sense. I think we, we need to understand that in an appreciative sense. And in fact, I always, one of the things I want to know is what else are you giving to? Not because I want to try to knock that other organization out of the equation, but I want to see how can I create synergy then in the kinds of information I provide to that donor about the organization that I'm representing so they can begin to see greater coherence in their overall giving. Because I think that's a part of their joy is they begin to see that there are, um, for all of us, there are reasons why we're attracted to certain ministries or organizations, even if they don't on the surface seem alike or that it might be harder for if I can help them even begin to see that I think they'll grow more generous to all of the organizations because it becomes and and it helps them also I think to plan um, about where they're going to maybe increase one year and increase another year and all of that is okay if I'm not just thinking about their mind and I'm going to get as much of their giving as I, as I possibly can. And, you know, if I can maybe even say some bad things about that other organization, you know, little 
um, hints that that my organization is better than that one. Um, you know, that's those kind of games are just so destructive. So I'm, I'm, I'm so, going to bring us back to the budget table and, and all the, the president and all the vice presidents are staring at the VP for advancement right now. The, uh, and, and so it seems to me that it, depending on how you managed last year, um, you might be in a different spot this year. So if you, if you went for breadth and kind of approached it from a standpoint of scarcity that you might actually be facing a, a tough year this year. But if you've got a head start on this deepening, this giving permission and room to develop and deepen relationships, uh, you might actually be in a position to, to have a, a really good year this year when it comes to asking for, for gifts. And, you know, it's interesting. We think about this paradigm of scarcity or abundance, you know, that the budgetary question in the first instance is usually out of the sense of scarcity. (laughs) And so the, the, the VP for advancement might have a ministry in that room too, to help the institution begin to move from a sense of, of scarcity to a sense of abundance and how we can see what, uh, how there's so much more out there for us to, um, grab hold of instead of making do we can make more um with with what we have and and uh so i think there's there may be a way to speak back into the budget process at the same time uh you you go out and try to find those deepening relationships as opposed to just trying to make the budget at on the expense or on the backs of the donors yeah and i keep hoping that we're going to see um more of the kind of collaboration and cooperation that all of the literature has been talking about for a long time, but Mm -hmm. particularly in higher education. But I think even across the whole of the nonprofit sector, um, it's really hard or people have a hard time letting go of their sense of ownership and and probably rightful pride in what they're doing to say, maybe we can be the support to somebody else doing this. We can come alongside another organization. We don't have to start that. We don't have to, or maybe we even stop doing it. But, you know, so I'm going to be really curious to see if coming out of the pandemic, there's more of a willingness among organizational leaders, including boards, to understand that we don't have to do everything, which would mean then we don't have to push our individual donors quite as hard because we may be funding more than what we should even rightfully be doing anymore. I don't know. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense. We we had a guest on here about probably not too long after you and I, David, talked in the spring we had a guest on here that um, I had cited. Uh, there's a poet at uh, Cambridge that uh, works in the institutional space, I guess you could say. He, he uh, David White is his name, and he said, the conversation is the work. Mm. The conversation like is the work. Yeah. And, um, and I cited that statement, White's statement, on the podcast, and that's what um, she said uh, – 
the woman that was my guest, she, she's, she's at Virginia Tech. And the conversation just sort of simmered around that idea that the conversation is the work. It's the most popular podcast that we've had in the last 12 months. Um, uh, both in terms of its, uh, just even just the summary itself on LinkedIn is remarkably positive. Um, and then the number of downloads, um, now you're hurting my feelings. (laughs) Virginia Tech's a pretty big school. Uh, (laughs) And and you can't go wrong with David White. (laughs) Yeah, but the thing about about it is that I think that's kind of what you are both saying is that you have to – I have oftentimes said to my clients because oftentimes you're making these advices to a board. For example, you're giving this advice and you're saying to them sort of like to to your your notion, David, to sort of dwell – and they're like, and then they almost want to like have a very, okay, fine, we'll dwell. And I always say, just, just dwell for six more months. <laughs> so at the point at which, at the point at which you're ready to solicit that five figure, six figure gift, just dwell with that relationship for six more months and see where yeah. it goes and teach yourself. And what I'm oftentimes doing is I'm trying to get that because I'm, I'm not an advocate for renewal rates. For example, I don't think relationships work. I don't go to my wife and say, Hey, darling, we have not renewed our relationship this year. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other more, more truly human ways that my wife and I ensure that our relationship is quote unquote renewed. And it's not using a 12-month calendar. And so I think some of what you both have said, you have to both believe in that abundance, which is what we sort of sat sat on for a long part of this conversation. But I just love the idea that we could line it up with the notion of dwelling, dwelling in that relationship for another six months is is, is believing that the abundance that you're about to ask for is there. Like, you know, it's there and you might even be able to close it, but you're also saying, I'm going to dwell in this relationship for six more months because I'm going to put the relationship ahead of closing this damn gift that I feel like I have to have right Right. now. Right. And so I'm just going to sit in it. And so I'm interested to know from both of you, because you both work in the higher ed space. How many of your boards do you think if if like if you and I were con- if we were all three of us consulting with board with the same board right now how many boards out there could really lean into that or are they so how many how many presidents and boards are so anxious to just start doing more that they can't sit in that six more months of meaningful relationships meaningful conversations with their donors and then I guess the other side of that same question, we'll, we'll wrap up on this thought. I'm, I'm very interested in your thoughts. Is how many how many fundraisers even know how to sit in that six months? I don't know that I know too many fundraisers who know when I say to them, just give it six more months. I know you can get $100,000 out of that gentleman. I know Mrs. Smith is ready to give you that gift, but give it six more months. I mean, how many of us are even ready for that? Yeah, that's a, you know, one of the things I, I think would be important. I, I think it's tough uh, to be honest with you, Jason. I think boards, presidents or boards and boards, presidents or fundraisers are feeling the pressure yeah. and the urgency of, of the moment. And I, I think uh, the, the, the key to, um, you know, when you have a little bit, when, when boards actually take time to dwell, you know, even, even in a retreat, yeah. you know, a day and a half retreat when they can spend more time on a topic, if it's focused and guided, I think in a thoughtful way, 
uh, you you actually can get more reflective because the, the the stakes aren't high at that moment. Now you've got an institution you've got to mm-hmm. care for, but if you can if you can suspend the stakes for a moment and just uh, talk about it in, in some of the ways that we've been talking about, it, I think uh, boards and and presidents can get there, and that's the key to the fundraisers getting there because if the fundraisers feel pressure, they're going to respond to that. But but yeah. I think I think the key might go back or does go back to something that Rebecca said earlier about uh, the moment we're in in terms of uh, organizations thinking about their future and their their willingness to understand that philanthropy is not possessed and and that we 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 get into that mindset that philanthropy or donors are are ours when we are in the mode of institution maintenance you know when we're worried about yeah. the institutional success and survival but the transition that we want i think boards and presidents to make is to become thinking begin thinking of themselves as stewards of the mission uh along with being stewards of the institution but primarily stewards of the mission and that might open up newer conversations about how do we preserve and advance this mission and when you're talking about philanthropy at the deepest and highest levels you're really talking about the the union of of mission and and values and how do you connect a donor's values with the mission and and a donor uh, you know a donor knows it if you're coming at them with a institutional question they can sense it they still might want to help but you come at them with a mission question uh, i think you you've got the beginnings of a of a really rich conversation yeah um uh, one of the one of the fun things uh, when I when I get the opportunity to work with a board that's dwelling a little bit um, in a retreat or something is and they're thinking about fundraising and often it's as they're thinking about launching a campaign or something and looking at really big gifts and to to have them tell stories of what has been the best gift you have ever made in your life. And maybe that gave you the greatest joy. Describe it and tell us why. And then what has been the most life-giving thank you that you've ever gotten? Mm-hmm. And, and as they begin to tell their stories and, and, and then say, what, what are some of the themes we're beginning to hear? Then how do we take what you've just said about what you want and if the goal is to do unto others as I would have done unto me what do we take from what we've just learned and apply that to our fundraising program and then how can you remind yourselves if in a board meeting you hear yourselves falling back into the old mode of we've just got to get out there and grab somebody by the neck and shake the money out of their pocket um, kind of thing to go, what did we say? What did we learn from our conversations? And it, and you do kind of see a light bulb go on. And, and particularly, it, it's really fun if that can come right after some of those, what I call almost obnoxious conversations. And then it's like, oh, my goodness, what were we just saying? I wouldn't want to be treated like that. Mm. And so there they are telling their own stories. And and it's also really 
from a fundraiser's point of view, I love hearing people say, what was the best thank you I ever got? And it's always, always, always more of the story. They came back with more of the story so that I could see where my gift moved the story forward. I don't want another plaque. I don't want another keychain. I don't want, I don't even need my name on your wall. I just want to know more of the story. And keep coming back because this story is going to go on for a very long time. You know, so just keep coming back. <laughs> you know, Jason, Rebecca, this uh, conversation has caused me to rethink my article and to reframe it. Um, both, so when I think about, you know, my three points, <laughs> renewal, reengagement, and raising the bar, I think I would say that what, you know, what I've learned in this conversation is that we need, this is a time of renewal, but the renewal of the, the persons that are involved in these relationships uh, and, and re-engagement is re-engagement with the relationship itself and raising the bar is raising our expectations, both of ourselves as, as uh, solicitors, as presidents, as board members, but also as, as donors and givers as well. So renewal, re-engagement and raising the bar really take on uh, deeper and, 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 and more meaningful um, context now thanks to this conversation oh i love that yeah yeah and, and I, yeah. I know i'm going to be thinking um even in my own work at my congregation where we're thinking about as as the congregation in a sense is coming back and you know it's easy to get up there and start singing the oh woe is us and it's been a long long sad year and so get out your wallets and, you know, and instead of, you know, re-engaging, renewing and, and taking the time to really raise the bar in appropriate ways. Mm-hmm. So I like it. Yeah. I, I suspect a lot of my listeners are going to be eager to uh, perhaps reach out to one or both of you. Uh, David, uh, we'll start with you. If somebody's listening to our conversation, um, tell us who it is you want to hear from. Um, who is that ideal person you want to hear from Rebecca? I'm going to ask you the same question so you can simmer on this as well. Who is it you want to hear from David? And then how do they find you? Send us to a website. We'll obviously put your information, uh, in the, uh, in the show notes in terms of LinkedIn, but who is that person, David, you want to hear from after today's conversation? I think, uh, presidents and CEOs who are interested in, uh, having a deeper appreciation for this enormous role that development fundraising plays in in their job descriptions, but may not have that experience in in that experience set. Most most college presidents are experts in something else other than fundraising. Uh, yes. But fundraising is is something that you have to develop some strength in. So you can reach me at the developmentpresident.com. David, that's uh, that's that's great, and we'll put that information in the show notes. Rebecca, I ask you the same question: Who's the person you want to hear from, and where do they find yeah. you? Yeah, I I love working with boards, but it's hard for a board to reach out to me. But yeah. I think, well, it shows up in my strength finder. I, I, I am an encourager. And so I would love to hear from a weary fundraiser yeah. who just yeah. needs somebody to say, you can do it. I promise this will work if you try. Um, if you need, I'll talk to your CEO but sometimes we just need somebody to talk to. 
and um, somebody who can cheer them on. So I guess since I I probably can't get whole board reaching out to me. I, I'm, I'm here for you <laughs> fundraisers. I feel your pain. I know it. Um, it's probably I, I, because where I'm at in my career and my work, I just recently took down my website so they can't find me there. But on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to reach me um, through my LinkedIn profile. It has certainly been a pleasure. You are both always welcome back. I admire and appreciate my friendships with both of you. Uh, listening to both of you sort of conclude your thoughts and uh, and describe who you want to hear from, it occurs to me you ought to probably the two of you ought to do a little more collaboration because it sounds like you could you could pair up and do some pretty uh, some pretty difficult but very meaningful work together. Um, it's certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Thank you. David. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, Rebecca. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.